0: Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com pod five zero for 50% off. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body
1: moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Ah, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not.
2: Bernie Marcus, the man, the myth, the legend, founder of Home Depot along with Ken Langone, billionaire, multi-billionaire philanthropist. What this guy has done for philanthropy is way beyond what he did for Home Depot, which of course is remarkable. Also author of the great new book, Kick Up Some Dust, Lessons on Thinking Big, Giving Back, and Doing It Yourself. He said some things to me in this interview that literally will change the way I view my life. So he's a good guy. He's 93 years old. He's done incredible things. Let's listen to him. Bernie Marcus. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Bertie Marcus, co-founder of a little store, Home Depot. Whenever I go into a Home Depot, I feel like I'm entering the Death Star. Like It is so huge. And everywhere you go, I'm not even interested at all in home repair, but I'm fascinated by all the things in every aisle. There's 6,000 paint colors I've never heard of, for instance. When you started the store, obviously you were thinking big. You had a lot of experience in retail that I wanna hear about. But the one thing that strikes me is, it feels like Home Depot is to, to hardware and home repair what Walmart was to groceries just a few years, like a decade earlier. Like, did you see
3: Walmart as a big influence? Uh, No, not really. They were the ones that we followed. Actually, they followed us. Uh, They decided to go into food business well after we were in the home improvement business. And I knew knew Sam Walton very, very well. We had lots of conversations. And I told him, if you go into a business, you want to be dominant in that business and He said, we're going into the food business. I thought he was crazy. Uh, he wasn't. He proved to be a genius. And today he's one of the biggest food suppliers in America to the American people. So, uh, goes, goes to show you he, uh, he followed, he followed the thing of making himself, uh, giving everything that people would need in the store. And he had the rest of the store to go with it. So he said, no matter what you need in a house, whether it's food or anything, uh, light bulbs, uh, you can find it at, at the Walmart. So he followed those the principle and re, he reinvented himself. And in him, reinventing himself, he reinvented the Walmart company uh, and, and brought it into this whole new area. And of course, they're dominant today in the food business, as well as other businesses.
2: Did you ever view him as a a potential threat? Because obviously, if he had light bulbs, he could also have everything else related to home repair.
3: No, we were actually very good friends. And uh, we spent a lot of time together. He would visit my stores together. We would go to my stores. He would critique my stores. And I would go to Walmart stores and critique his stores. uh, And we shared information. This wasn't antitrust. We didn't share anything that would get us into trouble with the SEC. But we did share ideas. And uh, many of the ideas that he had, we incorporated into Home Depot. And it was part of our success as well. So listening to bright people and listening to people that know what they're talking about, uh, is part of the success of Home Depot as well.
2: Well, it struck me in, in, in your book, uh, there was one similar story, which he has also, or, or, you know, has also been referenced to Sam Walton. You go into a two guys store pretty early on. And by the way, I remember two guys, that was a big, uh, kind of predecessor almost to, you know, the, the Home Depots of the world in a weird way. And, uh, You you saw their cosmetics section was a complete mess. And, you know, this related this, you know, eventually became a business deal for you and a business opportunity. But there's a similar story about Sam Walton where he goes into a competitor and he is just obsessively studying their, I think I think it was their stocking section or their or it could have been their cosmetics section. And it strikes me as fascinating how detailed, you know successful you know, retailers like yourself, Sam Walton, and so on,
3: are about every part of the store? Well, if you don't know your business, you're in deep trouble, aren't you? And so uh, Sam did know every part of his store. And yes, he did study people very well. He studied our business. He decided it was not for him. Uh, and the main reason was that the overhead, the cost overhead, we have people who, are, who we pay a lot of money to be in the aisles. Uh, ex-repairmen, ex-electricians, ex-plumbers, ex-carpenters. Uh, he would never pay that kind of money. So he never copied us because it was too expensive for him. It didn't fit his model. And he was right. He was right to stay out of that. And we were right in staying in our in our own lane and and staying where we were, but Sam listened very carefully, uh, as we do. Uh, you know, we're not the smartest people in the world. Some other people have great ideas, and you have to incorporate the great ideas that you see into your own business if you want to be successful. And I'll move on from
2: from Sam Walton in a second. But what was what was one idea that he shared with you that you implemented successfully?
3: Well, we we when we started the uh, Home Depot, we had these gigantic sales every weekend, uh, or we we would come out with a uh, an insert in the paper. We'd have it over a weekend, over you know from Thursday to Monday, and invariably we would run out of merchandise. And Sam Walton sat with me one one day and said, "This is the dumbest thing you've ever done. You got to get away from that." Get away from everyday sales. Why don't you just put it at the everyday prices? Take your sale price, make it your regular price, and that should be your everyday price. And we learned a lesson from that. And I took that lesson from him. Uh, and I think he's a great retailer, smart as hell. And uh, we incorporated that into the Home Depot. And we, we, we went away from sales. And, and made it everyday prices uh, so that the, the customer could find something in between sales. They didn't have to be there on a sales day to find something that was worthwhile and it was priced right for them. And, and that was the success of the Home Depot. And it took us a while to really change our philosophy. We actually had to change buyers. Some of our buyers could not deal with it. They had to have sales every weekend in order to sell their products, and if they didn't understand it well, so somewhere along the line, we had to move them out of the company uh, and bring in people that understood that philosophy. And that philosophy is stayed there today. It's everyday low price. We like to be the lowest in the industry, uh, and and uh, and it's shown because we're number one in 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 the United States today in home improvement without a question. But
2: my my, my gut would say, uh, you know, the sale price is often a lot, you know, when you do a sale, it's often a loss leader to bring in new customers to expose them to your store. How could you convert the sales price to the everyday regular price?
3: Well, by bringing in more exciting food, by bringing in things that are exciting that you never had before, and bringing them on the floor of the store, bring new products, and uh, actually uh, special buys, where you would actually have the manufacturer make a special buy for you so that it was special and you could run that in the stores, which we did. And we did and we do uh, even today. Uh, we run those uh, those items and uh, it helps to bring new customers in. But what the key is we want our customers to know Whenever you need anything, why would you look anywhere else? You really want to go to a Home Depot. You know that the price is always going to be right. You know that the product is always going to be the best. You know that we guarantee our products without a question. You know that the quality is going to be there. We stand behind our products. And we have people that could teach you how to do it yourself. And that's the important thing. There are many people that go into a store that don't know how to change a light bulb. They don't know how to fix anything. They don't know how to fix a toilet that's running. And our job is to teach them how to do these things. And that's the success of the Home Depot, by having people in the stores that understand, can translate their knowledge to the customer, and the customer takes it back home, and and all of a sudden they put a ceiling fan in by themselves They push the button and the ceiling fan goes and they go, oh my God, it really works. And so that's the making of a customer. And we've made uh, millions of customers over the years by teaching people that never knew anything how to do it themselves. I like that, the making of a customer. It's not that
2: you create a market. It's not that you've created a market where there was an existing customer base, although there was. It's that you made a customer by educating the population basically, that they could do home repair themselves, like yeah. I'm someone who can't install a ceiling fan, but I would shop at Home Depot, for instance i'm I'm one of the customers you've made as opposed to me just going to a hardware store and buying a hammer and nails and
3: then ending up in the hospital later. <laughs> yeah, right. well, we could we could teach you, and uh that's the key. The key is, can we teach you, uh, can we help you? Uh, become better in taking care of your needs for your home. And that's happened over the years. So when you talk about having all of these uh, sales, our customers know that if they need something, they're going to come to us first. First of all, there are enough home to go so they can find us. And number two, they know there's somebody in the store that can help them. And I run across this. I James, every single week of my life where somebody will tell me, I was in one of your stores, and I had a real problem, but I didn't know how to how to fix such as such. And your people made it so simple for me. And, it, and, and actually I saved a ton of money. And instead of taking a faucet and 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 buying a new faucet, I figure out how to fix the old faucet for a tenth of the money. And come out with the same product with a good product that serves your needs. I think this philosophy of of educating the
2: customer has been a critical part of your success and Home Depot's success. And there are two other things as re, as I'm reading the book that really struck me as as powerful. One is your notion of chutzpah. and I'll I'll, I'll take the example again from from two guys. You offered to take over their cosmetics department for and pay the rent, which is their, was their current sales. And you had confidence you would, you know, triple their sales. So you would make money, but it takes a lot of chutzpah in the sense that you didn't really have money and you're offering to pay an enormous amount of rent that you weren't necessarily a hundred percent. No one could be a hundred percent confident. They're going to get it. And that does take chutzpah. So what, What's the key to that? Because not everyone has that. A lot of people would say, well, no, I need to prove it first or not take any
3: chances first. Well, uh, entrepreneurs, which is a very big scope of people, many people like myself, uh, who who know that, number one, you have to take risks. Uh, You call it chutzpah, I call it risk. Uh, And if you don't take a risk, you can't you can't get to the solution, and sometimes you have to have an overwhelming faith in your own abilities to perform and to produce something. And so the key is: can you produce what you what you say you're going to do, and uh, do you have the stay with all to make it happen and continuously make it happen over and over and over again? And that's risk taking. And in the book I talk about risk-taking, I believe that young people, especially, should not shy away from risk, that they should take it. Because while they're young, they can afford to go back. And if they make a mistake, they can overcome it. Um, as you get older, it's harder, it's harder to do it. But even today, uh, at Home Depot, uh, even today in my own philanthropy, we take risks all the time. We take risks on people. We take risks on on medical uh, experiments that tell us uh, it doesn't work, and yet we still do it because we think there's a possibility, and the possibility is worth the outcome. And how do you, uh, particularly when you're
2: young, how do you know whether whether to how to assess a risk that might be too great? Because some risks are too great that even if you're young, you shouldn't take them. But how do you build up a sense of what kind of risks to take? And I'm, I'm even asking for myself here.
3: You, you learn by getting your ass kicked, actually. So you, you learn uh, what the parameters are and how far you can go. And if you go too far, you get slammed. And you have to learn what those parameters are. You know, what are they? Uh, how far can you go? What what areas can you go into? Look, I look at my life and I look at the things, the risks I've took all my life, all of my life. And I never thought of them as risks. I always knew that, number one, I wanted to achieve something. And in order to get there, I had to do something that was different. And I couldn't go along the, the normal way. I had to take unusual steps and convince people that I could do things that somebody else couldn't do. And then once you get the opportunity, you now have to perform. And that's a tough job. And uh, there, it's a question of making up your mind and working at it and just plowing away and letting nothing stop you.
2: So part of the way you eliminate risk is finding something where you think there's opportunity, but no one else is doing it. Because the fact that no one else is doing it might mean more room for messing up here and there while you figure out this risk. Although the risk of no one else doing something might mean that there's a reason why no one else is doing it. So that's a risk as well.
3: Well, you know, the, the reason people are not doing it is because they don't have an answer. So you better have some kind of an answer uh, before you take that risk. And, you know, sometimes you don't even know it's a risk. I know when we started autism, the work of autism. Uh, nobody knew what autism was. And it just, we just started it. We built on it and built on it. The more we learned, the more we in- involved ourselves in it. And uh, out of it came one of the great, autism centers in the United States, maybe in the world, we take care of more autistic kids in Atlanta by a multiple of eight over our next place, by a multiple of eight. And I I am afraid to say
2: I have not looked at that. I I have a daughter with, let's say, the mild side of the spectrum with autism, but still autism. And I'm ashamed to say I have not looked at your center. So I I will do that.
3: Oh, it's one. It's one of the great centers of all, and uh, they have products and they have people uh, that are actually taking care of school kids all over the state of Georgia, and um, uh, I think they're they're looked at as the as the premier teacher of of how to deal with autistic kids. Uh, We deal with hospitals when a hospital has an autistic kid. Come into the hospital. Well, you know, you, you try to put a needle in an autistic kid, and you're gonna, you're not gonna believe what's gonna happen. Uh, all hell breaks loose. We teach the nurses and doctors how to deal and, and how to how to handle the autistic children. It's become a great help for them. Uh, there is a, there's a method. Is a there's a method to it. There's a way to communicate. And they have to learn how to communicate. And the Marcus Autism Center does that. So I want to
2: address, like, when, we were, when you were talking earlier about, about risk, you said you have to have your, your ass handed to you a bunch of times. What, what what was the time, and you describe stories in your book, but what was the time that stands out for you right now where your ass was handed to you? Um,
3: well, I, I think that if, uh, you know, going back to the uh, example you pulled out, when I said that I would, I would make, I would pay rent equal to the sales. I think I would have had my ass handed to me. I don't think I could have done that. Uh, but it was, it was real chutzpah, and it was the only way I got their attention. And and I and, and what happened out of it, of course, is that by getting their attention, I was able to actually make impact with them and actually eventually go to work with them and eventually turn it into a real gold mine, which I did. I took their cosmetic departments and I turned them into real gold mines. So that's interesting. Like you had to get their attention. So for instance,
2: if you had said, hey, let me pitch you some ideas about how to improve
3: this, that would not have gotten their attention. Never, never. Not with a retailer like Herbie Huffman, who was himself a great retailer, I put him in the same category as uh as Walmart that was like bull and you couldn't sell bull to him he would buy it so you had to slap him in the face with something that he had never heard before and that that did it and it did it for me and of course it had it changed my career because my career with two guys was the basis of everything I know in retailing today uh, by going to work for two guys, I learned all about how to sell product uh, how to sell product in enormous quantities at low prices, and still make a profit for your shareholders and your your employees
2: and and ultimately, this was a big real estate learning experience for you when you when their se- stores were starting to fail, um, you realized the real estate was more valuable than the store and you you reworked the real estate and the, and the retail space that, that was sitting on
3: it. Yep. You take advantage of one thing. You know what? When you go into something, you know, the key for an entrepreneur is to be able to see something that somebody else doesn't see. So we recognize that the value of the land and the property was worth more than other things. And, the ability to sway in between uh, is really critical. So you can't stay on track. It doesn't work that way. You have to be able to move with the target and move, you know, intelligently and do the right thing for your business. And that's what entrepreneurs do. And uh, I can say that there are many people out there who run businesses today that are doing this as we speak. They're changing the scope of their business based on what they see happening in front of them and they're making it better.
2: I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month... I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I, the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting... And, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies and listen i've interviewed 1500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs i can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and ceos the, the successful ones is that it's all about the people you surround yourself you if you hire well you're going to have a great business and you know thankfully ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring, so you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com/slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You know, another quality I think I mentioned there were two there another quality in addition to this risk-taking aspect is I feel like you deal you and this is related, I guess. you deal with failure very well. like you you mentioned, and I think think it was the starting of of your first store. You didn't really have a lot of customers that first day, and you said, "You half jokingly, your wife wouldn't let you shave the next morning because she didn't want you with a razor in your hands." Right. So clearly, you got depressed, and you expressed this to her. Maybe you were crying a little bit. I don't know, but uh, uh, you dealt with it, and you went to the store the next day. And I think a lot of people have a hard time dealing with failure and and maybe situational depression like that. Like, what was your what was your resource?
3: Well, you know, um, I I think you you touched on something that's very important. I think in the book, I try to tell people that dealing with failure is probably one of the greatest roads to success. It's a step to success. If you can handle failure, and I don't know anybody, and and I really have a lot of friends that have been very successful There is a one that I know that hasn't fallen over their feet at one point or another have come to a point where they're looking at the failure in the face and disaster and they're able to overcome it. The key is how do you overcome it? And you don't dwell on it. Uh, There there, there are people that walk around today and uh, all they do is dwell on on the mistakes they made in their life. Uh, Somebody asked me a question a couple of weeks ago and said, um, if you had your life to live over again, what would you do differently? Well, I just looked at him and started laughing, and I said, what you got are you kidding me? I said, I'm, I'm a son of immigrants, came over here poor with no money, and I'm worth a hell of a lot of money today, and very successful in what I do. What could I have done wrong? <laughs> you know, what could I have done wrong that was so bad and why would I spend my time thinking about the mistakes that I made? I'm better off staying on the things that I did positively. And those things that I did positively stand more for what I, uh, what I want to do in the future than, than, than anything. So when I, when, I, when I talk to people and I say, tell me what happened to you, and they go on and on and on how this one screwed them and that one screwed them and this this one didn't work out and it, it shouldn't have been that way and the people weren't good to them and you know, luck, luck to let them down. You know it's a loser. This is a loser. This is a guy that is not going to make it in life. He's more dwelling on, on on his mistakes than he is on his positives. I like to say, I like to hear a guy say, look, I had my share. I made mistakes. I've overcome them, I'm moving on, and this is what I wanna do with my life. That's a more positive answer. And I'm I'm, I, I'm drawn more to those people. But when you're in the middle of a
2: failure, like again, let's take that first day of the business, or take the day you were fired from Handy Dan and, and other stories, uh, in the moment of peak failure, it's hard to say, Oh well, this is eventually going to turn out good for me, so I'm, I should celebrate today because you could only be successful after failures. It's hard to think that way in the middle of peak failure.
3: No, in the middle of peak failure, you're trying to look at and say, "What did I do? What happened here? Let me figure out what the hell happened, and let me go back and redo it, and let me go back and see whether or not I can make this failure into a success." And that's exactly what happened. We know what happened um, uh, in the first day. It wasn't really our fault. They left the ad out of the paper. The <laughs> Atlanta Journal Constitution. We had this double truck ad. This is going to bring people into our store. And they just left the ad out. They didn't do it purposely. It just got left out. And nobody came to our stores. And we had. I don't know, 220 people on payroll. Money was going out the doors. And uh, overhead was eating us up alive. And I called the the publisher of the paper. And I just said, I don't know if you know what you did to us, but you just killed us. You just put us out of business before we started. A new business. And the guy was very understanding. I didn't scream at him. I didn't call him any names. I didn't say, you know, you're rotten son of a gun. You know, you shouldn't have done that. All I said was, You killed us. And he said, You know what? I got to make it up to you. And he did. And he gave us the back page for about a year. And that back page, we could never afford to pay for it. And so we overcame that, not by something that we did, it's something that somebody else did, but we're able to overcome it by dealing with him in a way where he felt guilt. We gave him a Jewish guilt trip. And he he got that. You learned Jewish well from your mother. Yeah, so he, he, he got that Jewish guilt trip. And he knew he had to do something. And he did the right thing. Uh, and he made it up to us. And not only made it up to us, he made it up to us in spades. And that turned this whole thing around. Because all of a sudden, Now the ad was on a back page. Everybody would see it. Everybody looks at at that back page. It's got great readership. And so customers began coming in from all over the state. And uh, believe me, from all over the state, they were traveling from where you are now uh, to where our stores were. We only had four stores. And they were traveling 20, 30, 40 miles to get to our stores because the prices were so good and, and the quality of the merch site was so good and they could find everything that they wanted in one place. And they found people that could help them on how to, how to do the, whatever their job was. So that, that was a turnaround. We took a failure, a complete failure and turned it into a, a success. Because we thought it through, and we dealt with people in the way, the right way. Had we screamed at this guy and threatened to sue him, which everybody today—I mean, we talked to—we talked to some of our lawyers. Our lawyers said we're going to sue him for everything that worked. Well, we wouldn't have had a business. We'd have been out of business by that by the time that that case was done. So it we worked out the way we did it, and that was how you turn failure into success. That's that's entrepreneurship. And I don't I don't think anybody could teach you that. But it's interesting, though, like how you dealt with
2: him in you had to think of the psychology of how to get your goal. And I find that something like 80% of business conversations or more are not necessarily about products or locations or new business ideas, but are about the psychology of dealing with the many stakeholders that a business has, like how do we talk to so and so, whether it's a shareholder or a newspaper editor or uh, an employee or a customer, a lot of it is about psychology rather than oh, let's cut prices or let's sue them. Or it's more about people.
3: Yeah, it's not. It's not. Uh, it's not psychology. It's communication, and communication is very, very important. I don't know if they teach us psychologists anymore or if they ever taught it in colleges. Uh, but if you listen to people, you begin to learn things and you learn what, what resonates with somebody and makes it makes it easier for you to deal with them and them to deal with you. And people like to deal with people who are reasonable and have an intelligent approach to something. And and we'll react better than to other people. So this was a case where um, it just happened to be the right time at the right place. And I had the right guy to talk to. And uh, you, you have to understand my state of mind at that point was pretty low. Because I knew that, you know, another two weeks of this and we were going to be out of business. Because we couldn't afford the cash flow flying out the door. We were undercapitalized to start with. So it was a desperate moment for Home Depot. And that was a desperate moment at which time the only answer was what he did give us the back page and let us expose our stuff. We didn't get it for nothing. We paid for the back page, but it was well worth the money and brought the company back. And what would you have done? If in two weeks you were just done, we're, we'd have been done. <laughs> we'd have been done.
2: You would have shut down all the investor money, everything, and would you have started something new or like just w- play that out? Like, what would what would have happened? you
3: think? Oh, I, 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 you know, that's a game. That's a game I don't play. Okay. Why would I, why would I play it? I would spend too much time on it, and uh, I, I, I could tell you this: I would go down swinging.
2: Yeah, so there was more, there was more, you had more at-bats before that, those two weeks I, were out. I, had,
3: I had done something, I would have done something, and uh, it would have been something that would have been hopefully as good, but this was as good as it could get. Yeah, and you know, I, I noticed, of course, the,
2: the age you were as you did different things, and if someone came to you and said, I have this great idea, but I'm just too old to blah, blah, blah. Well, what
3: would you say to them? You're never too old. Look, I'm 93 years old today. And I still you don't look a day over 92. Yeah. Like... Thank you very much. That was very yeah. nice of you. The truth is that, uh, it look, even at 93 today, uh, you think ahead. I'm still thinking ahead. And, uh, I'm worried about what we're going to do as the Marcus Foundation, what we're going to do over the next five years. I'm not, I'm not thinking about what I did wrong yesterday. I'm thinking about what we could do to change the way the world is in the next five years by what our input will be. And, and I'm sure that everybody that works at the Marcus Institute, uh, feels the same way. They were all thinking in terms of what we have to do to move the ball forward. But, you know, we have, and I neglected to
2: introduce you earlier. Jay Kleiman is the head of the Marcus Foundation. He's with us also. Jay, hello.
3: I I want to introduce you. I see Jay up there. Yeah. Nice to see you, Bernie. Nice to see you. Nice to be here.
2: So let's talk about charity for a second, because obviously, when you make a lot of money, it seems like one has two choices. You can either expand your lifestyle in extravagant ways, or you can start looking how to put your money to to good use. And obviously for the most part, you've chosen the latter. Um, How do you think differently in charity as opposed to like, Oh, I'm just going to give a hundred million to American cancer association. I'm going to give a hundred million to this, to a hundred million to that. How do you, I don't, I never, not that those are bad associations, but I get nervous doing those. I I I feel like you have a personal touch. How, how do you get more, how do you become entrepreneurial with, with charity? Well,
3: uh, that's what the whole book is about, frankly, that you could do it, that you can make a change, that in fact, writing a check is not the only answer, that if you're an entrepreneur, if you're smart, if you've built a great business before, if you had the brains to do that, that you have the brains to take it and move it into, move it into uh, doing charitable work, doing work for your community. That's much better than just writing a check. You write a check, you send it off in the mail, that's it. Boom. That's not the way to do it. And none of the things that I we've been involved with the Marcus Foundation and Jay can corroborate this. We don't, we don't just send a check. We, 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 we put a device behind it. We put our energy behind it. We put our brains behind it. We put our thoughts behind it. We help them execute. Uh, we help them strategically think about where they have to go. And all of those things, many of these foundations don't have. Most of these charitable organizations don't have that. Uh, they basically have a board that sits on a board. They they have lunch once every month, and that's it. Uh, and they go in and they, they feed you full of crap, and you go back and you, you vote for whatever they want you to vote for. Uh, that's not the way we run it. We look at each one of these foundations. We look at what their objectives are. We look at where they intend to go, how far they want to push the apple, how far they want to, uh, what their strategic plan is, and whether or not they have the resources to reach those strategic plans. And if they don't, we as outsiders look at it and say, you know, you don't have the right answers or you don't have the right strategy. Maybe we can help you. And we stay with them and help them. And I think because of that, most of these uh, successes that we've had, like the Autism Center, like the Avalon for for traumatic brain injury and post-sigmatic stress, like all of the issues we've been in, like the aquarium. Uh, We built the aquarium. Everybody said it can't be done. It was on the inland. There's no aquarium in the United States that is not uh, allowed, uh, some kind of water on a lake or on a river or on an ocean. Um, it's the only aquarium that's inland in the United States, five and a half hours, in fact, from the nearest water. And so um, they said it couldn't be done. And it's now the most successful aquarium in the world. It's the biggest in the world by square footage. Uh, and it's probably the most successful in the world. We have more things going on in that aquarium than any place else. And people uh, generally go to an aquarium and spend you know, an hour or two. Not at not the Georgia Aquarium. You go to a Georgia Aquarium, you're spending a your whole day because there's that much to see and that much to do. So when you go there with your kid, James, you're going to see and they're going to enjoy it and you're going to enjoy it there's so much to do and so much to see and so many things that you didn't know before that you'll be exposed to it'll be a revelation to you i i can't wait to to visit it
2: but let me ask you this like i'm always curious like during the pandemic which is obviously covid was this horrible you know pandemic but also horrible was the fact that millions of small businesses had to shut down. And like in New York city, for instance, as one example, a quarter of a million small businesses shut down and 60,000 of them never reopened. They, they, they were all out of business, generational businesses, families destroyed, you know, who knows what kind of illnesses, depression, suicides, whatever happened. I'm always surprised that more, private individuals and enterprises didn't kind of help out to keep industry alive almost like micro charities like pinpointing very specific situations like like these many of these small businesses for instance and helping out how come you think that didn't happen how come everybody just waited for the government to do bailouts which you
3: know maybe wouldn't have happened well uh, i can tell you once the government got involved with it which they did most entrepreneurs will not go near it. I know we don't get near anything that the government is involved with mm. because we know it's full of bureaucracy, red tape, and bad thinking. And, uh, of course, we're finding out that that's true now, that now they're talking about all the fraud that took place, that the money that they did give out never went to where it should have gone, and many of the dollars went to people who committed fraud and figured out a way to steal the money from the government. So it's, it's a good question that you ask. I don't think that there's anybody, maybe Bill Gates uh, had the money to come in and maybe put, you know, billions of dollars into this and try to save these people, but each one had their own problems. It was, you know, it was rent, It was paying for their associates, for the people that worked for them, their insurance. It's very hard to solve. And I don't think anybody but government could have done something. Trump tried it. Uh, He tried it. I think he did the best he could, but it just didn't work out the way it should have.
2: given what's going on in the economy right now, the money was spent and now the bill is due. I mean, you were born five months before the stock market crash that that started the Great Depression. You've been there, done that, you've seen everything. Obviously history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes as as Mark Twain would say. So what do you see from your experience is happening now? What could happen?
3: Well, I, I don't like to get into politics. But I could tell you that anything that that could go wrong will go wrong because the politics are all wrong. Um, you know, we cut out energy resources, which is the undercutting, which is really the basis of everything here. I think that the entire issue with inflation is due to the fact that we're we stop drilling uh, and we're cutting back on. Our oil and gas. And yes, I I think that somewhere in the future, in the future, we should, we should try to live without oil. But right now, it's the wrong time. And it's hurting the American people. And it's hurting everybody. Um, and everybody's trying to adjust to it. Nobody understands policies. And I don't understand the policies. Look, I'm 93. I've lived through how many presidents? God knows. I remember shaking uh Truman's hand when I was about 17 or 15, something like that. And uh I've been involved with politics almost all my life, and I've never seen anything like this. Ever, ever, ever. This is like what in God's name is happening. I
2: think you've been through 16 presidents, by the way. This is your sixteenth president.
3: Wow. All right, you figured that one out. That's good. I'll That's use a lot. that. I'll use that and I'll take it as a real number, okay? It, it's true. Um, but so so,
2: do you think the Fed raising interest rates, that obviously doesn't have anything to do with the geopolitics and the policies around oil. Do you think that they shouldn't be raising these interest rates? And, and they're supposedly apolitical. So why are they so aggressively raising interest rates when it's going to kill the economy, which they don't want to do? Look,
3: I'm a retailer. I sell hammers and saws okay, don't don't fall and, back yeah, on that. you're yeah. you're a genius, and you know it. <laughs> and you're asking me a question about something that, you know, I just don't get these people in Washington. I don't understand them. They double talk, they double think, uh, and they usually think bad. and uh, are they doing the right thing? I think probably at this moment, they have to raise interest rates, but I think they waited too long. I think they didn't recognize that inflation was a real thing when everybody said it was an aberration that was just a temporary thing. It's not temporary and I don't think I don't think that the geniuses in Washington understood that and some of it is too late and too late to affect it intelligently and um uh I just hope that they can slow things down. The, the the thing is that people are really hurting badly. Um, people are making choices today. They don't have food to put on a table and fill up a gas tank. It's really bad for America. It's not good. And I don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat. When you don't have money to pay your bills uh, and, and the money you make, even though you're getting more money working, it's worth less money because of the inflation, and your dollar is worth so much less, and your buying power is so much less. Are they getting killed? And these are our customers. I mean, I'm worried about our customers at Home Depot. I mean, this is, this is painful for them. How they're surviving is beyond me. Do you think this resolves itself with... I mean, I hate to think this resolves
2: itself by killing the economy, because it's almost that makes things worse. So do you think there's a more natural way this resolves itself? Like we loosen restrictions on oil or some of the supply shocks with China start to ease. The, the monetary inflation is made up by
3: technological innovation. You think, about, think about all the issues that we're facing today. You have open borders, number one. You don't have, a, you don't have, open, you have open borders. You have people flocking across. Somebody's got to pay for them Somebody's got to pay for their education, for their medical, for feeding them. Uh, and they don't have a right to work. Think about how disastrous that is for America. That's number one. Number two, the oil situation. Uh, this thing about global climate control uh, has overtaking this president. It's in his brain. It's in his head. And he thinks that's the only answer. It's not the only answer. And he's caused all of this by really stopping drilling. We were, we were self sufficient when Trump was president. And being self sufficient meant you could help the world. I don't think the world would be in this kind of state that we're in today if we had continued those policies. But I don't know. He's surrounded by people who like John Kerry and uh, people like that that, uh, you know, they're, they're from another another planet and uh, they're not thinking in terms of realistic. It's just not realistic to me in the terms that they think of. Climate control as important, but right now you have to postpone it and deal with the now and not with the later, okay? Now you have to solve the problem and people need to be able to have money to put food on at tables. If you can't feed your kids, you're in deep trouble. Finally, I want to know, 93 years old, you're going
2: strong. I'm sure you asked this all the time, but I have to ask, what's, I'm about to turn 55. I want to keep going for the next 50 years at least. What's, if I were to make a theory about what you do, is that every day you wake up with something to do that day?
3: Oh yeah, oh yeah. And some project we're working on, uh, we have a lot of things that we're working on today. Um, We're working on a blood test with Johns Hopkins right now uh, that we hope is approved by the FDA, where a simple blood test will show cancer in many, like prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, at first stage Mm. with a simple blood test. That is a major step forward. We're working on something that has to do with um, macular degeneration. And, uh, and, of course, we're working on traumatic brain injury, which is a major problem. Because right now, there is no treatment for, mac- for traumatic brain injury. You just saw that thing with Tua. Everybody's seen that thing with Tua. Well, what happens with Tua now? Uh, he has, evidently, traumatic brain injury. He's got a he's got real damage to his brain. Where does he go for treatment? Right now, there's not a whole lot of places that he can go, and there are not a lot of treatments that really work. We at the uh, at the Marcus Foundation uh, through the Avalon Network, Avalon Network, we've come up with protocols, and we have hospitals all over the United not all over the United States. We have Tulane, we have Jefferson in Pennsylvania. We have North Carolina, Chapel Hill. We have um, University of uh, Jacksonville uh, in Florida. We have uh, Operation Share in Atlanta. Uh, what else do I have, Jay? One more. is one more. We're open up in Washington. But really, the real issue, James, to get to Bernie's, what he's talking about here, and Bernie, you can expound on this, is when he goes to bed at night, he asks one question. And that is, what did he learn today that he didn't know yesterday? By Bernie? Oh, yeah. We find out how dumb we were yesterday. Because (laughs) even what we found out, we should have known better. And, uh, no, we learned learned a lot. Even at 93, I'm learning lessons. Um, I mean, just I had an experience yesterday. That was a revelation to me. What's that? Well, in medical research, it had to do with medical research, and uh, in a disease uh, that uh, Parkinson's disease, that there are some maybe some simple solutions to, for Parkinson's, and one of them we are doing clinical trials on right now. That is very inexpensive. Uh, it's not one of these ninety thousand dollars a year, a hundred thousand dollars a year. It's it's in dollars and cents. It's almost off the counter, over the counter stuff. And if that works, it'll be a miracle in America because so many people are suffering with Parkinson's, and all these people that are suffering don't have the money to pay for these expensive treatments. And of course, you know the government somewhere along the line is going to stop paying for it. That's what that's what uh, unfortunately. Uh, when well, we have uh, uh, health care run by the government, this is what you run into. In England, in England at the age of 93, just I just went through a hospital procedure. If I lived in England, they would have said, don't spend the money and I'd be dead today. Well, I don't want that to come to this country. And so uh, I hope that we keep our medical the way it is. I don't want to see Obamacare expand. I think it's dangerous for the country. And uh, I think that clinical trials of what we're doing, like macular degeneration, this is 22nd century stuff, Dick Tracy stuff, where they rebuild the retina in the eye, where people are actually blind and bring the eyesight back in certain people that maybe you could say the sight of 30% of the people. Do they use stem cells? Is that a, like a, a stem cell epigenetic thing? Yeah, stem cells. It's using stem cells, and and we're great proponents of stem cells, and uh, we we're using stem cells for for brain, for cancer, uh, for uh, for lots of different uh, tissues uh, around the body, and and we're finding you know that as we use it, we're finding success with it, and of course before we get it through the FDA it'll be years but it's working uh the clinical trial that we're doing now uh the uh, it's been approved by the FDA and if that clinical trial with the eye works I mean this will this will be like a miracle for people this this will be a miracle so let me ask this like Okay,
2: phase 1, phase 2, these are important phases. You need to you need to prove safety and you need big trials for that and statistics and so on. Are phase is phase 3 really necessary for the FDA or should people just start trying medicines if they're at a late stage of a disease and not have to wait, you know, maybe years and billions of dollars before they could take a medicine that would save their lives?
3: Well, there's pros and cons to that. And we sit on both sides of that. Um, On some, I think that some of these drugs should not be on the market yet. They have to go through the third phase. But on some, I think that when they show enough progress, that people should be able to use them. And uh, there's there's debate among the FDA. There's debate in the government today on whether or not the FDA should continue with the rate they're going or whether or not they should open up the doors and allow more drugs. There are drugs that are being used in in Europe and in Asia that are very successful, that have proved to be successful one, two, three years. And why we can't use that success and, and say, let's apply it to the American population and let us use that drug here. Um, it's 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 really down to the government. It's down to the people that run this, and um, it is political and it is bureaucratic. And there's a lot of pluses and minuses, but I think that where they're where they're showing real success in Europe, uh, and Japan, and Asia, and uh, other places with these drugs, that they should be able to use it here in the United States.
2: Well, you know, Bernie Marcus, and and joined with us by Jay Kyman, head of the Marcus Foundation. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I super appreciate it. I also previously interviewed your your co-founder of Home Depot, Ken Langone, um, okay. and your book, Kick Up Some Dust, Lessons on Thinking Big, Giving Back, and Doing It Yourself. Is such a great read, such a great and inspiring story. Like I said, you've you've been there, done that with everything, and uh, from from stand up comedian in the Catskills as a kid to to I couldn't believe when I read two guys like we used to shop there as a kid, and then of course founding Home Depot and all the charitable ventures that that both of you guys are are
3: are doing. What what's your plan for today, other than promoting this book? Well, you started me off. Now I have to find out how well I did with you. You did very well. You're a very good guest. Believe me. All right. Okay. Uh, And uh, I think that the book, part of the book is to try to convince some philanthropists out there. There are a lot of people with a lot of money who are sitting with tons of dough that are not spending it, are not giving it away, are not doing anything with it. They're buying the toys. They're buying the boats. They're buying the planes. They're doing those things, but they're not spending it on things that really can help society. And they would get a tremendous amount of uh, benefit themselves. I know the emotional benefit that we get every time we produce something that works. I know it's good for America. It's good for the people of this country. And it's good for ourselves. It's certainly good for ourselves at the Marcus Foundation. We yell for good about ourselves. We save a life that wouldn't have been saved because we didn't get involved. If we hadn't gotten involved, that life might have been lost, and that gives us great appreciation. So, That's really great. I hope there's some people read the book and will
2: decide to do something. Well, thank you very much, you guys. I really appreciate it, and, and great book once again, Bernie. All right, thank you. Take care.